Welcome to the Esports Central Podcast. This is episode number 65 and the this episode we're doing a special set of our usual format we're having a long form interview with a very, very exciting guest. Now for our first time listeners, I'd like to give you guys a breakdown on the platform that is Esports Central. Esports Central is the premier news outlet for all things Southern African esports. You can find the website at esportscentral.co.za. And if you stick around till the end of the show, I will be sharing all the various social media accounts where you can follow the Esports Central platform. And now, without further ado, join myself, Carmel Chikde and Snare as we interview a fantastic guest. Alright, now I hyped up this guest interview quite a lot, I'm not, not gonna lie, and it's for good reason. The man I have joining us tonight, is the name goes by the name of Zayori. This guy has casted at TI. He heads up production or the director of the production house, Moonduck Studios. And he was a white guy with fucking dreadlocks. Sayori, <laughs> baby. Oh, my. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here, man. Thank you so much for joining us. It's it's super hype that you're here. I'm going to put it out to the chat, all the people watching or listening, rather, because it's a podcast. I'm a bit of a Zayori fanboy. So if I come across a little biased, you best know I am, actually. <laughs> I must well, admit shit, that man, I... I appreciate it. I maintain some bias as well, just because you're one of the few white guys with dress that didn't look like an affront against humanity. <laughs> I appreciate that as well. It's funny how weirdly racially charged dreadlocks are. And I, I grew up in southern New Jersey, which is really close to Philadelphia. Uh, it's a huge minority city. So uh-huh. I, I you know, talk to African-American folks almost on a daily basis. And it was interesting how much it would fluctuate where sometimes they would give me the fist bump and be like, brother, right on. That's fucking awesome. I love it. And then other times it would be the complete opposite where they kind of give me the look or they'd say something relatively offensive that I, I wouldn't repeat on air. And I just kind of <laughs> don't make eye contact and, and walk away as passively as I can. Uh, and from my perspective, it's just fucking hairstyle, man. I don't know. I just had long hair. I wanted to do something different with it. And it seemed like a cool thing to do. I grew up watching Rob Zombie, dude. He looked like a fucking badass. I was a white dude with dreads. So I figured if I could even get like halfway to zombie status, then maybe it'd look cool. And here we are. That's pretty baller. So now I know we, we, we brought on Zayori to talk about the business of esports, his new book called Surviving Esports, which is, is actually phenomenal. Anybody wants to check that out, best go to Amazon and buy that shit. And of course, you know, just talent stuff in, in general. But before we get to that, and now we're on the topic of like appearance and shit, I think I noticed um, you, you, you had some baller stuff going on. Obviously, dreads got cut off, but now you've had the new hairdo, you've been painting your nails, snares also out there doing the similar stuff. So, so what's your kind of motivation behind the sort of different kind of dress styles, Zayori? Um, I, I don't know. It's sort of a combination of things. I, I definitely think about that stuff a lot, maybe more than some of the other talent, partially because having dreads was part of my identity for the first, whatever, three, four, I guess maybe five years of my esports career. I got dreads right before I got into StarCraft two. So um, obviously in the book, I talk a lot about cutting my hair and the drastic impact that had on my career. And ultimately, I made that choice partially because I felt like they were starting to hold me back. You know, I wanted to look the way I wanted to look, and I went into BTS with this fuck them if they don't like me attitude. This is kind of who I am, wear it on my sleeve sort of deal. And while I appreciate that mindset and think that's super powerful, and in general, people should try to uh, pursue that energy, if you're working in a public-facing entertainment industry, on-camera talent sort of field, you got to cater to the audience a little bit. And there's a certain point where things are just too distracting and they're taking away from what I'm saying and what the other people are saying. Um, and that started to limit the kind of jobs I could get. And there were certain brands are like, listen, we're just we're not into this. So I don't care how good you are on camera or you know, commentary wise, whatever else. We're just not into this. So I cut them off and then went for the very, what I call vanilla ice cream look, you know, the ski slope hairdo, very, yep. very conservative. Um, I've never been a big tie guy, so I've always tried to make up for that with uh, the wearing shirts that have the cuffs that are usually patterned and are long enough you can twist out on the outside of a jacket. And I always thought that was sort of a cool way to stand out. But um, I don't know. I've always been attracted to women's clothes for some reason. I always sort of like like tight-fitting stuff, tight pants, that kind of stuff. And I have a very slender form. And a lot of American clothing is cut for a, a, a larger, kind of bulkier, overweight male if they're yeah, yeah. kind of shooting for the average mark. So I've found in a lot of cases American women's clothes fit me better than American men's clothes on average and are closer to my residual self-image, if I can borrow that from the Matrix. Oh, nice. Um, nice. 
AI just turned 30, and now that we're doing stuff with Moonduck, I'm, I've gotten to this point where, I, fuck it, man. What, what do I have to lose? <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't really need to cater to some white bread audience anymore. And if somebody doesn't uh-huh. want to hire me because I got polish on my nails or some feminine haircut, fuck them. You know, like we live in this modern age, like embrace the PC culture, dude. You know, you guys can't keep me down anymore. I don't have to wear these baggy ass pants to fit in. So as I get older, I just care a little bit less about trying to maintain some sort of mainstream image, I guess. I wanted to do it at the Dota Pit Minor, but I got cold feet and was a little bit afraid to do it at someone else's event. So I thought uh, Midas Mode would be a good starter where even if there was some sort of negative reaction or or whatever, I mean, nothing happened, of course. It's all just a a farce, a made-up fear in my head. But, um, you know, I I figured it was a little more appropriate to do that at a a Moonduck event, and now that Mm. opens the floodgate. Now now I'm a polished guy. I actually got an appointment to get him touched up uh, this afternoon. So tell me, where does this actually end? Because I know I sort of also started in a similar vein, right? Just like doing nail polish every now and then. You're like, actually, this is a vibe, and a lot of other sort of feminine styles of fashion are a vibe. Are you going to go all in? Because lately I've been considering doing makeup as well. Um, it sometimes seems like a vibe. It's like, yo, this actually seems pretty cool. There's things that you could do with this to sort of alter your appearance that you would never be able to do otherwise. Is that sort of an endpoint goal for you, or are you more comfortable just sticking with the clothes and the polish and you'll see about the rest later? Good question. I I think, um, in general, makeup is kind of a pain in the ass, and I'm not envious of people who feel like they're locked into this image that requires 30 minutes or an hour of work every day to get in costume, so to speak. Um, However, working on camera, I've had makeup done at a lot of events, and I've had a new appreciation for uh, what good makeup artists can do and how a little bit can go a long way. And I mean, in some other cultures, like in in Korean culture, for example, men wear makeup and it's not really considered that weird. It's just a cosmetic thing that people do, right? Like skincare. That's not a a woman's thing. That's just a human thing because everybody wants to have healthy skin. So um, it's funny. Huh? Go ahead. Korean men are really gorgeous, right? So Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, um, I don't know. It, it kind of de- depends on your perspective a little bit. I don't know where it stops for me, though. It's it's an exploration, right? It's a journey. I, I dated somebody who is transgender a uh, year and a half or two years ago. Um, and talking to her and her friend friend group, it was kind of interesting because they said a lot of them said like, "Well, that's exactly how I started." You know, oh, I'm just wearing some women's clothes. Oh, I'm just wearing women's deodorant. Oh, and all of a sudden, you just have like everything in your life that's like men versus women. You're doing the women's thing, and you just go, "Holy yeah. shit, am I am I transgender?" And I. I, I don't really think that I am, but I, I guess I'm still exploring exactly what that means and all that kind of stuff. So who the fuck knows, dude? I'm just kind of yeah. taking it as it comes, trying to do what feels somewhat natural without standing out too much, right? It's a balance. Like, I like standing out and having some flair, but at the same time, it does get a little annoying when everyone gawks at you when you walk on the street. And, you know, you want to have some semblance of being able to assimilate with everyone else yeah. just for simplicity's sake. You know, there's a point where... It wouldn't bother me to walk around naked necessarily, but I wouldn't want to have to see everyone's reactions of seeing me naked all the time, if that weird weird <laughs> analogy makes sense. That makes sense. It, Sometimes the explanation gets annoying. It does. And I, I kind of, I love your whole fucking, it's like, it's 2K19, bro. It's freedom of expression. This is the, if you want to do this kind of thing, now is probably the one of the best times in history. But I think, I mean, in this podcast, we, we, we're not afraid to get political and stuff. I mean, if Ziari is the first, like transgender person on a fucking broadcast one day that's pushing fucking boundaries that's revolutionary my dude yeah i mean i i don't know if i'd label myself there quite yet but i'm I'm somewhere on that spectrum i mean i was just talking in a uh, i don't know i wasn't really a podcast i was just streaming to my small hardcore fan base the other day and i was talking about how there's there is a difference between gender identity which is am i male or am i female and sexual orientation which is am i attracted to men and or, or am i attracted to women um, and that's a pretty new concept, I think, in terms of like mainstream adoption. And it's just important to recognize. And some people are, you know, very straightforward. They're a hundred percent male and they're a hundred percent straight. And I totally believe a ton of those people exist and that's totally okay. And that's awesome. But there are some of us and seemingly more of us out there that are some gradient on those two spectrums. And we've come up with all sorts of labels to try to identify these different thresholds. Yeah. And I'm, I'm a little less interested in labels and more just figuring out where I'm at so that I can, you know, figure out what I'm into and what makes me happy. You know, I think that's the ultimate quest quest with all of it. I was really inspired by a guy named Eddie Izzard. I think he was a Monty mm. Python dude. He was on Joe Rogan not that long ago. Uh, but he's, I think he describes himself as like a lesbian trapped in a man's body. A man's body so, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, so he's like transgender, sort of, but still like a dude physically uh, and, and that kind of stuff and is attracted to women. So it's this sort of like, is he gay? I don't know. The word gay doesn't really mean yeah. what it used to anymore. So, you know, I'm mostly attracted to women, but I'm obviously somewhere in the middle on that like gender spectrum. Um, you know, so whatever bisexual means for gender identity. <laughs> I don't I know what a, the word is for that. <laughs> I have a great suspicion, right, that if not for the fact that we were educated from basically the ground up to always have a consideration towards the gender binary, right, that this particular thing that you're describing about the spectrum and people being whatever in between, you're just trying to orient yourself and just live your life the best way you can. I have a strong suspicion most people are actually like that. It just so happens to be the case that language is difficult. Um, being assimilation yeah. is difficult. So it's easier to try and box, not necessarily box yourself in, but to put yourself in a category that is, that won't experience any sort of opprobrium in normal society that you can just live, do your thing. And it's fine without too many questions, but you also at the same time can't live fully for yourself because there's always going to be constraints on how you can live for yourself. But uh, like, I feel if 10 years from now, right, if we just said, okay, let's put an entire stop on teaching kids anything about gender and see what happens. This particular interrogum, weird, nobody knows what's happening, but everyone's enjoying life phase. I have, I have a suspicion it's far more than norm. We just happen to teach ourselves to act against it in many particular ways. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of truth there, for sure. Um, I mean, I, I'm definitely not quick to throw out science. I like Something a, a male-to-female transgender person said to me one time was that mm. once I have my operation, I'll be able to post on Tinder and just post as a female and not have to disclose that I was ever a male. And I don't mm. really agree with that assertion. I, I yeah. think you're, you're still not a female, you know, chromosomes are still a thing. You were still born a male. You, you're, you're changing things by, you know, taking different hormones and stuff, but you can't completely just throw the biology out the window and just start redefining terms that we've used as a building block to get to where we are. So I think expanding the vocabulary is great. More inclusion is great. But I think there's limits in all that stuff. And we need to take everything in stride and just want to be very careful about drawing lines between a me problem and a you problem. And I, I like to think of all this stuff as it's a me problem. You know, I'm somewhere on this spectrum and it's on me to kind of figure it out. And, you know, I don't want to have to ask other people to change pronouns and move stuff around you know, because their vocabulary is different from mine. You know, there, again, it's a, so there's a degree of assimilation that I want to try to meet people halfway. It, it's a me thing, and I'm going to wear the clothes that I want and do the shit that I want, and I don't really expect you to do anything other than just have an open mind and, you know, treat me as a person more so than a, a product of presumed gender, a.k.a. that because I'm a man, I'll be into, you know, hunting and construction yeah. or some stereotype like that. You <laughs> we, know? we agree. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely with you on the sociological aspect. What's been confusing for me, I have this biologist who's a friend of mine, um, and she's been doing research into gender lately. And once I actually spoke to her about this, like two years ago, I think, um, when Jordan, no, three years ago, excuse me, when Jordan Peterson started blowing up a lot. And I was talking to her about this thing. And she said to me something interesting, which I'll never forget. She was like, until you know a person's genome, exactly if you can't map it right then dispense with calling them biologically male or female and just accept the sociological definition because if you can't map that biology you don't really know what you're talking about so i definitely agree <laughs> with you that like sociologically yeah that's definitely a better way to go because there are these categories we know how people experience the world we know how people interact with this thing so it makes no sense to try and pretend that we're having a wholly different conversation but i also i'm just because i'm not a biologist i'm uncomfortable taking the taking the high ground on the scientific basis on this one, you know, on physics, yeah. I will do that. But on the biology, I'm like, yeah, I don't really know. I can't really tell you. So I'll take the biologist's word for it. And some of the biologists don't seem to have consensus right now on the issue. So it's yeah. fine, I guess. It's going to be confusing for all of us. Well, that, that's how science works, man. That's, that's how innovation and anything that's cutting edge works. We discover new shit. We start developing psychology and actually caring about people's feelings and listening. And as more people share their experiences, we realize people are way more complex than we ever thought and we already yeah. thought they were pretty fucking yeah. complex so we have to keep expanding the the lexicon of, of of things and how we handle them and definitions it's it's ever evolving right it's always a moving target and as we have more technology and all this stuff to raise the bar for humanity and kind of that minimum floor all these new expectations come to light so i'm i'm with you on that and that's why i think 
despite all of it, no matter where you are on the spectrum, the key to all this fucking shit is just to continue talking and continue listening. I'm so glad podcasts just in general have blown up and become a thing that people have embraced in their lives. I'm a huge fan of Peterson, Rogan, a lot of other stand-up comedy or comedians that have their own podcasts and stuff. And I think it's just a great way. Uh, there's so much time in your life when you're doing easy tasks where you can listen and process information. Washing dishes, washing the car, folding laundry, driving to work, eating lunch. All these moments where you can pop in some headphones and digest 30 minutes of really good, juicy conversation that makes you think and expands your perspective a little bit and you know opens the doors to another world that you didn't know existed. And that, that shit's fucking awesome. And I think the only way we can understand each other is if we sit down and fucking try to explain it and listen a little bit to the the other side and that's what saddens me so much about this political landscape it's so polarized it's so much you're a, you're a, a you know a, a, this side or that side and they have bad words for each and you're you're like a traitor i mean look at the shit that mm. happened with ellen degeneres and george bush how dare you have dinner with him he's a war criminal like yeah i don't really agree with what he did or like the wars that he started but fucking christ dude he's, he's still a human you know like ellen's not a monster for having tea with the guy fucking hell <laughs> Yeah, Ellen's not a monster for having tea with him. He still stays a monster because, you know, he's George Bush. But yeah, she's cool. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it's an extreme example for sure. And I understand some of the backlash if you truly believe that he's responsible for all of these um, uh, innocent victims that have been killed through these wars. Then, yeah, I, I, I get it how you can connect those dots. But you just have to recognize that that dialogue, I think, overall, if you take that formula and independent of the George Bush Ellen thing, it's a little bit scary. You're just increasing that kind of side versus side, draw the line, cut them off. And I think that it, it gets us into the tribalism territory and it freaks me out a little bit. And I, I, you know, sometimes the centrist view is awful and sometimes you have to make a hard stand. But I think sometimes you want to try to compromise and at least understand you know like abortion i'm all about uh pro-choice right to choose but third met third trimester all right I'll, I'll, I'll give you some wiggle room there we can set some limits right we're still drawing course, lines yeah. it's still a compromise at some point is all i'm getting at so you can have really hard values and lines that you won't cross but you still have to compromise at some point down the road and we should just encourage people to be open-minded and just try to find the positives and the bullshit that people are saying sometimes just making people feel listened to is a really powerful thing man yeah, I completely agree. And I like the point you make about like these other forms of mediums like the podcast. I'm a big listener and a fan of the Zayori and Trent podcast, by the way, as well. But I think in the innovative <laughs> things in terms of innovation, trailing the conversation a bit back to <laughs> esports, I think one of the biggest <laughs> fans that we had probably going to be like, oh, fuck this podcast. is a politics podcast, not an esports podcast. But uh. you know what? This is the guest I brought on. This is what he decided to talk about. And I fucking love it. Like, you were brave enough <laughs> to do this. And I appreciate that shit. But... I think in a very innovative thing you did with your book, to take it back to this space of the conversation, is that um, you guys recorded an audio book where I think you did your own a voice recording. Obviously, you're a broadcaster as well, so not too difficult. And you got fucking Sir Action Slacks to give we a haven't voice recording yet. of it as well. Okay, well We're going it. to. It's um, going to come out at some point. Yeah. It, it's not out yet. Um, I'm actually planning to record my version this week. He's, he's just the, the busiest man I know. I mean, honestly, he is always on the road. Um, and now he's he's somewhere right now. I don't know. I, I can't remember. But uh, I think he's back at the end of October, and we should have the Slacks version done, um, hopefully in the first week of November. But um, we'll see. I'm trying to find that balance of encouraging him to get it out there because I know a lot of people are excited about it. But I don't want to be too much of a nag. I know I'm asking <laughs> yeah. a lot. For sure. For sure. It's like hard to always find that balance. But now I read your book, right? I I started reading it. I read it like maybe the first one or two chapters, and then on the second day I started reading it and once I got into it I read it for 10 hours straight literally it was that fucking I was, I was hooked and I couldn't put it down oh, wow. I think it was one of those books where I, I don't know how much content there is out there about like just somebody writing a book about esports I read uh, Red Eye's broadcasting guide but in terms of esports books I, I don't even know if there are others out there so what is your motivation to go out and start a book for about your journey in esports yeah, so there there are a couple others. I haven't read them. If you type esports into Amazon, um, there are a couple others that come up, but I, I don't think many are, are very polished, so to speak. I read a couple of the reviews, and it seems like it's just, you know, Amazon KDP is set up that anybody can upload basically any manuscript. So it's really cool. It's really powerful. It's a great, It's kind of like YouTube just for a different medium where any undiscovered writer who's actually pretty good can get something out there and collect, you know, genuine reviews and get distribution without paying anything out of pocket. It's an awesome opportunity. But 
opportunity cost there is, you know, nobody proofreads your shit. It's on you to yeah. find an editor and make it actually good and, and worthwhile or whatever. So there are some funky stories um, uploaded on Amazon with all sorts of, of keywords in the title. I started writing it mostly for therapy. Um, I just had some insomnia. I've had some depression issues throughout my life. And um, I, I had some experiences that I felt like I was going to forget and I didn't want to forget, um, especially some of my early formative esports stuff. At the time, I thought the stories were a lot more interesting than they were. And when I got to BTS, I was like, man, I'm, I'm going to write this. I've, I'm, yeah. I'm the success story in esports. I think this is the ending. It'll end with, and then I got a job and made it in esports. And I started writing that and probably got to like 50 pages or 40 pages or something. And then said, ah, this is garbage and just got distracted <laughs> by work at BTS. And just, you know, dove into all of it head first. And then a year later, year and a half later, I uh, left BTS, started Moonduck, and kind of, again, had that feeling of, man, I've got all these great experiences. I should really write them down and see if anything can come of it. At the very least, I won't have to stress about processing this information anymore if I can capture it um, in written form. So, again, went back for the writing therapy and uh, probably got to, like, 75 pages or something. I might have said words earlier. I meant to say pages. Um, 75 pages or so, which is a decent chunk. You know, it's like the the foundation of a little manuscript. And as I updated that outline, I realized that getting hired at BTS was really more the beginning of the story. You know, that happens like 25, 30% of the way in, something like that. And, um, you know, developing the summit, navigating a new work environment, being outclassed as a commentator, all these things are the really valuable learning experiences that potentially people want to hear about. And then obviously getting to work some of the worst tournaments in history um, <laughs> and discovering the summit one and the summit two and all the, the growing pain that came along with that it's kind of a fascinating tale and then it ends with this explosion of course i, I end up leaving bts no surprise there and there's a, a bit of a falling out so um it is a proper story with an arc it starts a little bit slow and then chapter 10 comes around and sniff sniff hits and that was the point when people told me i felt captivated you know before that it was just okay but really this is when the story took off so as it became more real i just got more motivated to finish it when i was about halfway done the manuscript i took it to slacks and said hey dude i think i have the beginning of something that could be pretty good do you actually look at the outline do you actually think these stories are interesting and worth telling and he genuinely said fucking yeah dude i think this is worth it and if you do it right it could be really good for your brand and you could do something that no one else has really done before and um that was the motivation i needed and the closer you get the more you want it to be done so it creates mm. this feedback loop where you get there. It felt like a WoW quest, you know, more like a WoW rep grind. <laughs> it's a raid, basically. You know, so you're like halfway through Exalted and you're only getting rep from these shitty little turn-ins <laughs> and you're just like, man, this is slow going, but in six months, I'm going to have it. Yeah. So there you go. I haven't actually read the book <laughs> myself in the same way that Camille has. Um, I'm actually curious, like, whether or not this is in the book or not, what do you think are, firstly, the thing that... The experience that you had that brought you closest to quitting esports entirely and the experience you had which sort of cemented your view that esports was the way to go for your life hmm i think wanting to quit sniff sniff has got to be like the undisputed number one because it was just so traumatizing and i mm -hmm. i actually did quit and got a real life job doing it support for like seven or eight months or whatever it was um and those seven and eight months, like they were, it was a really weird time in my life. It was really defining where it was great to get, it was sort of like breaking up from a high school sweetheart where yeah. you might realize in that eight months that you actually love her and you want to go back and you're going to go, go and get married or, you know, rekindle. But having that break in perspective to try other people, regardless of the outcome, is going to be good for your long term mental health and ability to say no regrets. So yeah. it's like I tried it, and at the end, I could confidently say corporate life is not for me. Doing this like nine to five, running around fixing printers, I made like 35 bucks an hour. It was pretty good pay. It just wasn't satisfying work. It just wasn't fun. I didn't work with people that inspired me, and I didn't feel like I had a real sense of accomplishment at the end I'm of the exactly day. What so, you mean. Yeah, so even though it was great at the beginning and the paychecks were great, by six or seven months, I was right back into my depressive habits where I was binging too much and just not socializing enough and and feeling like there was there was no point to anything so i quit went on vacation drank a couple beers and then had a revelation to make dota radio and re, re uh, reignite my entrepreneurial spirit since i had a little bankroll but i'm so glad i had that time so i think 
um, what cemented that I needed to do something in esports was that feeling of, hey, I've got 15 grand in my bank account. That's enough for me to feel like I can assume some risk now. I'm, you know, I guess what age is I'm like barely, barely 20. Fuck this, dude. I can come back to this job. I want to be able to say I tried it in esports. I don't want to be that 30-year-old guy that has a house and a wife and has all these regrets of things he didn't do. So feeling empowered enough to give up that job when they offered me a, a potential promotion, that was, that was the catalyst to quit. They offered me, I, went from, I could have gone from contractor to full-time, and instead of going full-time, I said I quit and lied and told him that I was going to go start a CrossFit gym. Was never going to start a CrossFit gym. Uh, I just didn't want to tell him that I was going to go roll the dice on some fucking esports radio website that was going to have ten viewers. But it was the uh, right play, right? I was able to leverage the content I made at Dota Radio to get beyond the summit's attention, and then they gave me a trial event, and that trial event was ultimately the thing that I could leverage to get a full time job offer. So it started this chain reaction of things to you know being the person that took that risk early on. Even though it was risky, that made me stand out compared to the other people that had played it more safe and didn't assume the same level of risk to just dive mm -hmm. in. So scary, but in retrospect, it was totally the right play, and that was a super defining moment of, I'm going for it, baby. So that is, I mean, in the book, it gets it gets outlined really nicely, especially in that period when you, because it's like, especially when you write about your, your formative experience, when you started with the StarCraft tournament, you guys hosting the tournament yourself, it's like, it's like, looks like you guys are putting in so much work, but it just seems like such a fucking thankless job. And then it's like, oh, Zeori's gone and making 35 bucks an hour now. I, this guy's moving up in life. And then you're like, you know what, but this isn't me. And going back the Dota Radio was definitely a success obviously landing the job in BTS now I want to talk to you obviously you assume risk coming into esports in general but writing this book I know you said in the position uh, 6 podcast with Dan that yeah you think these stories are old I don't really give a f I don't think people are really going to give a fuck anymore and I have enough rapport where it's like I can say what the fuck I want and people can't do anything about it but have you gotten a backlash from sort of quote unquote airing the dirty, dirty laundry of the behind the scenes or has it been mostly positive so far um, it, it's been mostly positive. I've, I've been trying to maintain some awareness that people are going to be more likely to say nice things than negative things. Like most people that either yeah. lose, read it and lose interest, just lose interest and never post anything either way. Um, and those that don't like it are not going to go out of their way to DM me and say, Hey bro, read half your book. Well, thought it was pretty trash. shitty. <laughs> See you later. You know, that's just not something that people really do. So, um, yeah, it's been mostly positive feedback that I've gotten. Um, there were a couple of people that DM me that I don't want to name specifically that are very close to BTS. I will say I haven't talked to LD or God specifically or heard anything, um, if they've read it or what they think, but I know a couple of folks that work at BTS have read it and they, they remarked it how reflective it was. And I think they were expecting it to be a little more like good guys versus bad guys, you know, making the Davids out to be sort of like villains or something. Um, and I think most people read it. And they don't really have that feeling of I made myself out to be a hero. You have this more sort of like, yeah, you went through some shit. You worked in some broken systems. I definitely contributed to breaking some of those systems. But other people were also significant contributors to <laughs> those broken systems. And um, I think I did a, a pretty good job trying to analyze it from like that third perspective. You know, it's still from me. But, you know, I, I tried really hard not to put words in people's mouths. I tried not to I tried to be very clear when I was making assumptions and justify them with, hey, this was the data I had at my disposal. So I made this decision, you know, based on assuming LD thought this, you know, and then this is why I reacted the way that I did all that sort of stuff. And my, my editor um, did a great job helping me get that tone right and chopping out some of the pieces that I think were a little over the line in terms of talking for someone else. And it's like, I'm not, I don't want to tell their perspective. I just want to tell my perspective. Um, I, I think I have not heard anything from any of the heroes of new earth people. There are a couple folks that I've slammed in there that I, I suspect just haven't read it either. They don't follow me anymore. So they don't know that it exists <laughs> or they saw it and they just don't care. You know, they don't, you know, they're like, Oh, cool. I already wrote something, but they're not going to spend 15 bucks to order it. And, yeah skip to the part that they're in so i don't know i guess we'll see um i mean i think <laughs> i think 
if I when I was reading it, like obviously when you're reading a story, because that's at the end of the day what we're looking for, right? Reading a book, it's a story, right? And yeah. I was waiting for that moment. I was like, oh, it's building up now. I'm ready to say, fuck you, BDS. You guys screwed this 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 underdog character. You've been building up for the whole time, and it's <laughs> like at the end of the day, I feel like there was a, a big level of self awareness because although, like you said, there was some toxic work environment, the hours were too long, the burnout was real, but you also took into account that you weren't doing your or. At some point, you, I, I think this is how I understood it, where you were like, maybe I wasn't doing my own due diligence to look after myself. I was burning myself yeah. up because I'm also super ambitious and want all those fucking things to succeed, right? So I think at the end, that's why, I, and I really like the part where I think it tied it together quite nicely with like, I left BTS. I was pushed off because of the TI5 thing, which we'll get to in a bit. Um, but I, I think I need to go back and say, Aldi, listen, I, I don't know. I wasn't too happy with the way I left. I left because I was like this and let's have a chat. And I think that was really fucking great, man. Yes, that was that was huge. That was a stunning experience. Right, I really didn't understand how much it was weighing me down until the day mm-hmm. after, and I just felt like, oh my god, I lost ten pounds. Like uh, that was that was really keeping me up at night, and I didn't even realize it. So, uh, but thank you, man. I, I I appreciate all that. It it took a lot of effort. I mean, this was over three years worth of work to get this distilled. On and off, I did have to take some breaks, but to get yeah. it distilled. Um, and, you know, kind of compiled down to this point. Um, there were definitely some moments where I, I had other things added in that I thought were interesting little anecdotes, but they didn't add to the story. And it was already so long that we chopped some of that stuff out uh, to you know, kind of credit the point that you just made. It's all about telling a story. And even though it is about learning and all this kind of stuff, you still want it to flow and have some sort of arc to it. Ooh, now that actually brings up an interesting question. Is there a particular chapter in this narrative that, though you might have felt it doesn't contribute to the large narrative that the book itself was trying to tell, that you nevertheless felt was, that you were sad to see go, rather? You know, um, what, would, what would the deleted scenes be? Trying to, trying to think. Uh, all right, so I, I'm curious, since you guys have both read it, we'll, we'll do this live here. I'm going to share a real insecurity with you, um, at least live by podcast standards. So... What did you guys think about the part uh, when I first met Breaky CPK? When I was working for It's Gosu, he was at Honcast. We were doing our own our first tournament, and he came in and said that he wanted to cast it. What What was your takeaway? Did, first of all, did that I, seem fair? I can't fucking believe you asking this question because I wrote it down. It was the first question I wrote down. I was like, okay, there was a situation with Moonmander, and there was a situation with Breaky. I was like, I want to ask Zayori about this, but I was like, is it really a good question? But now that you bring it up, I fucking love it, dude. It's like, that's just shit behavior, right? And you just called it out as it is. And you didn't go and make Breaky a bad guy. You worked with him in future. It was like, that's all good in the end. But that moment right there, that was a dick move. And you and you just said it like it is. I digged it, man. Oh, wait, I didn't get through the whole book. What happened? What happened? So, Fill me in. Okay, so Sayori moves over to Han because Starcraft is dying and fucking, yeah. Then yeah. he moves over to Han. He's there, and it's like, okay, he's starting to cast this thing. He's making progress. Um, the company he's working for, I think it was It's Gosu, got a, a deal to cast this like cup that was going on. Top teams are playing and shit. And then as Iori is getting ready to cast, Breaky CPK, who used to work for Han at the time, was like, yo, I work for Heroes of New Earth. Fuck you. I'm going to cast this game. And then Sayori was like, okay, so this is like, I think it was, I think you wrote it, or I understood it in that way, was that, I was like, this is a defining moment for me. Am I going to bend and be like, let me pander you, or am I going to take a stand? And I think Zayori was like, no, I'm going to take a stand here. This, we, we had a contract with the actual company, and we're going to make this work. And I think that was pretty cool. Yeah. That was, that was a, a pretty good TLDR, a little more aggressive than how it happened in, in real life. <laughs> but, um, you know, just like Dota, Heroes of New Earth had an open match system. So if you had the match ID number, you could just go download the replay uh, as soon as the game was done and just cast it that way. And at that time, Breaky was the lead caster for Honcast, which had been bought out by S2 Games. So he was officially an S2 employee, and S2 were the ones sponsoring the tournaments that it's Ooh. Gosu was doing so it was really weird that they would like sponsor us to do these tournaments and say hey we want to build up the community we need more tournament and content creators that's why we're going to sponsor you guys and then have their lead caster come in and be like hey man yeah i want to cast the best part of this tournament um the fans want it so you know and i was just like well that's not cool i still want to cast the finals of my own tournament man that's like the whole point of growing the scene 
Um, but it, it all boiled down to a big miscommunication. I think the esports department wasn't talking. So the person that we talked to, I think, was the director of esports. And Breaky did just heard about the tournament is like, hey, cool, here's a community event. We're going to cover it. And didn't realize that it was part of their whole their whole ecosystem. So I don't know that it was Breaky's fault more so that it was the fault of a broken system within S2 games where they had a department that just didn't talk to itself. So, But um, nevertheless, conflict emerges regardless of yeah. whose fault it was. Yeah, yeah absolutely. But, so any, anyway, that... That, that is one that I, I hesitated on. I spent a lot of time mm. thinking about whether to leave that in or not. Because, and I talked to my editor of some of these, you know, should I send this to people for their permission or their proof before publishing? And she recommended against it because it opens up this door to let other people editorialize your perspective. And she said yeah. it's, it's on us to make sure we don't cross this line of speaking for other people or making too bold assertions. But, but at the same story. time, you know... If you were there, everybody has their own, quote, truth of what happened based on yeah. their perspective. So you're allowed to tell your side, and you're leaving it open for them to fire back and tell their side if they think you're grossly, grossly wrong. That's your incentive not to fuck it up, is that they have just as many rights as you do to express themselves and say, whoa, 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 Sayori didn't quite get this right. This is what really mm -hmm. happened. You know, but um, she said it's a real slippery slope to start. Go who? Where do you draw that line of which people do you ask, which people do you don't? And then, it, you know, it's like drawing the line of who gets the invite to the wedding and who doesn't. How close of a family member do you have to be? You're just asking for people to get pissed off. So oh, you're sure. better off just saying, oh, I trust my own judgment. I'm going to tell it like it is. Um, and you just sort of omit certain things that are too private or, you know, over the line without without spinning the truth of, of what's happening. That was one that I felt like added to the context. Like you said, I felt mm -hmm. like it was just bullshit behavior. It reminded it, it reminded <laughs> me of fucking Yoda and Luke and Empire Strikes Back, man. Luke's a total dick to him when he thinks he's just some miscreant on the planet, and then he realizes he's a fucking Jedi, and all oh, of a sudden Luke's saying, so yes, great, master, bro. and please. Yeah. You know, and it felt like the same fucking thing when he thought that I was a nobody. Uh, he gave me the, the kind of raw treatment, and when he thought that I was somebody, uh, the tone totally changed, and that's that's just what happened so you got to call him like you see him but i don't know if he's read that i have not talked to him about it specifically i suspect he hasn't i i suspect he probably has his own perspective of how that situation went down and probably doesn't like the way i painted the picture but that's all conjecture i have no idea um and i like i said i'm a little self-conscious that that's the one i'm still as outside of you know, I, I would be kind of sad if LD sent me an email and said, hey, man, I read your book and I think it's really fucked up what you wrote and it's yeah. you know, <laughs> not accurate. That would really upset me because I put yeah. in a lot of effort to try to make it an accurate account of what happened and really tried hard to be positive about LD when I could because there were a lot mm -hmm. of moments where I felt like he led me well and gave me really great advice and was a really good mentor. And even when we butt heads, I always respected him. I never lost respect for him in oh, that sure. kind of like broad context. Even after we left and we weren't getting along, I still really respected him as a businessman and a decision maker and his work ethic. He has all these qualities that are just very admirable. So um, I... I hope if he reads it, he's able to appreciate that, and I hope I hit the mark in terms of getting that tone right to tell the, the story I wanted to, you know? Look at the bright yeah. side, though. If he ever starts, if anybody complains about the book, right, this is, you can be like, look, guys, as a male culpa, I'll offer you a starring role in the movie. You can play your own part. <laughs> <laughs> then it's all good, and it's fine. That would so be I the wanna... real dream. So again, I would have touched sniff the movie, there. dude. Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. That was that was rough. I think I would like to talk about it on the podcast, but I feel like the book does it much better than we could do. And I want to ask another like some questions that the um, that the book that you can't really get in the book. So like back to the breaky thing. I think the one thing I thought when I read it was like that I could they could see a downside of you writing that it's like okay, breaky used to be the top guy. Then as you can see he had his ego. He came in. He, he like tried to do his thing there. But then it felt like maybe now that you're writing about him, where you like a big hotshot in Dota, like a production like Moonduck Man and all of that kind of stuff. It's like maybe, and, and Breaky hasn't really, I won't say, like he obviously he's worked a couple of good events and stuff, but he's never really made it in the Dota. He's never hit that tier one mark of talent. I feel maybe it was like, uh, like kicking him while he's a bit down, you know? Yeah. 
Well, no, that that's true. And so one thing that my editor pointed out after her first or second pass was that there were a lot of inconsistencies in how I attribute credit to people, where there are certain points where I just say a nameless producer really fucked this up. And there are other times where I say, hey, specifically, this person from this company had this idea. Um, and she suggested normalizing it. But as I went back and reread some of the passages, it didn't seem fitting. I didn't want it, want it to be a collection of hit pieces. I, you know, I, I wanted to be able yeah. to talk about these negative tournaments. And it is balanced, right? In the, the major All-Stars chapter, I call out one of the producer or one of the, the, the people by his first name. You know, I didn't say his last name. Um, and you know, when we were doing some of the stuff at that first dream hack, I just said the producer dropped the ball. Um, and for some of those people, it's like they don't even work in the industry anymore. So it seems almost right. petty and pointless to like name like what somebody going to find him on LinkedIn and be like, yeah, you really sucked <laughs> 10 years ago. Like they've moved on. They're, you know, they've, they're doing bigger and better stuff. So it's like telling that stuff as an account of what happened is still important to add context to the story of like, did this person's fuck up change the outcome of the event and how I had to deal with it? Yes. Okay. Well then we need to include it because it impacts some of my perspective and my decision making. Um, so I never went out of my way to just say, yeah, this person was a dick or fucked this up. Yeah. Um, just for the sake of it. I always tried to make sure it was tied to some other part of the story. Um, and I did also want to not make everyone nameless because there are some spots where some people did some really good shit. You know, working at Karina, working with Mishka Lee. She was fucking awesome. I think she still works in the industry. I want to give her a shout out. You know, the shit she did at Garena to make that stuff possible was awesome. Her ability to read the audience was top tier at the time. So, um, you know, I don't see any reason to not include names when people do really right. cool things that were underreported or that, you know, my audience might not know about. Yeah, that's a real good um, uh, point to clarify there. Like, there's no point in calling out somebody who's already, like, he's quit the industry, he's not, not a person anymore. But people are still involved. If they did good work, shout those fuckers out. You, you want to do it because they did a good job. Yeah. If somebody, like, I don't think, I don't think, in my opinion, you really crossed any lines in, in the book. But that's just my take. But, you know, it's funny that you brought up the point about LD maybe reading it being mad, but maybe this is my personal bias because this is how I view the two commentators from, from my perspective. But I think when you wrote about LD, it was like, he was like almost like, even though you were working for him, he was your boss, but it's also like he's like a hero, right? He's fucking LD. The man's casted TI finals. He's like, it's LD. Yeah. Yes, he wasn't perfect, but even you can see how dedicated he was to his craft. Even though he made mistakes and shit, he was like, this is fucking LD and he's trying his best, right? But I right. I thought your your writing about gods I found quite funny because obviously they're like, I don't know, business-wise how it's like a 50-50 split or whatever, but they partners in terms of owners of the business. But like gods, I feel like it was just like, it just felt like he was there in the book. And it was like pretty, I found it pretty funny. So I wonder if he reads that, I'm going to be like offended <laughs> that it's like, oh, I, I, he didn't talk about all those things I did. It was like, ah, I don't yeah. know. So that's um that, that's funny because that you're not the first person to bring that up. That that's come up in a couple <laughs> of DMs to me of just like, man, you really God's doesn't do a lot in this story. And it's it's true to a degree though. I didn't really do it intentionally and I think we were caught up on what are, you know, I I really I, the first draft I wanted to get everything out there. I was just like, "All right, I want to make sure this is interesting first and then we're going to dial back the shit that is over the line or petty or yeah. you know whatever else, right?" But my my worry in, at the beginning was writing it too bland and then my editor reading 100,000 words and going this isn't really that interesting we you know we yeah. need to really rework this so we were focused on what to cut out not what should we add and i think that might be a, a part that i would have liked to elaborate on a little bit more um i will say the nature of the story is so much about kind of like the business side of running things and like my hand as a project manager and um, so much of that was just on LD's plate. And I, you know, I, I don't know what their ownership share is like, but um, Gods was there as a commentator and they needed somebody that could travel and go to events and be just really focused on casters and content and network and, you know, getting tournaments and all this kind of stuff. So yeah. he just he operated parts of the business that I didn't really touch on. I didn't have anything to do with the network of casters that we managed. You know, I just casted with people and LD was the guy that I worked on with a lot of stuff. You know, I, he was sort of like the guy that I started shadowing. So when I had issues, I got in the habit of going to him and he was just the guy that could fix the problems that I had. And gods would sort of work in his little bubble and, you know, manage content and calendars and shit like that. So 
Um, I don't know. It's just not that interesting. There were probably some lines that they got cut were like, and then God sent me the calendar. It's like, Ooh. okay, who gives a fuck, dude? Yes. Yeah. Somebody did send you a calendar. Um, so not to belittle the work that he did, it's just, again, did Wasn't some of those tasks add to the context of this story? Yeah. Is there a learning experience there relative to my anecdotes? No. So unfortunately, it is a little bit more about my relationship with me and LD. Um, and I think there is a world where you could interpret it where God's doesn't really do anything at the company. And that was definitely not the intention. And I, I, you know, if it came across that way, that was, well, just a live and learn blunder on my side. But, you know, it, it's all pegged based on my my perspective. So it's, you know, I interacted with uh, LD more, so he's in the story more. As I this is 2019. We take the worst possible interpretation so therefore <laughs> confirmed, Mr. Andrew Campbell hates hates gods though all his heart thinks he's a trash caster. <laughs> Definitely yeah. put that in your review of the book. <laughs> they're they're so different. Like gods, I always say like he's one of my favorite dudes in esports to get a beer and talk to girls with. Like he's just a fun guy to be around. You know, he's Australian. He's got that really sociable vibe. He's really fun when he gets a little liquor in him. Uh, he's really yeah. fun to travel with. He's very flexible and just low key. He's an awesome dude to hang out with. I just didn't like him as my boss, you know, and LD and I were that sort of different. I felt like we were both leaders. So there are a lot of times where if we were on the same page, hell yeah, we could tackle anything. Awesome, but if we man. disagreed, yeah. fucking hell, mate, you know, <laughs> it's the two had, bulls just charging at each other. So just very different context. Somebody resigned from my, uh, where I work recently and I was their boss and we had a very similar dynamic where if we're on the same page, we're best of friends. But the moment there's any kind of friction, it's like, why, why are you even here actually? Why are you? <laughs> I'm going to uh, miss him, but yeah, uh, probably a good thing that he left, but I'm still going to miss him. I get it. Well, so that is to tie it back to other esports stuff. That's one of the things I love about working with Slack so much and why I think we have such a good duo for events like mm -hmm. Midas mode is because we have this unparalleled separation. Like I don't have this with anybody else where we can disagree and argue and go in and use really inappropriate language <laughs> and insult e in each other's intelligence and at the end we'll always either come to a conclusion or we'll disagree <laughs> to the point that we'll say okay we have to run an experiment you know like are we just we always get to a conclusion and as soon as that conclusion is reached it's over and it's just yeah. back to normal conversation, you know, and <laughs> both of us know it's just how we argue and how we make our points and that that can be a good thing. And it's intense. And sometimes we'll stop and say, all right, listen, I'm not trying to make you mad, but I still don't understand this. And it's just like, all right, all right you know, and, this. but that's, that's the great thing when you have two people that are pretty bold in an environment like Moonduck, where we have the flexibility to run experiments. I can say, listen, dude, you're fucking wrong. Let's tweet right now. And I bet you 10 people will reply <laughs> and agree, you know, shit like that. And sometimes that's a great deal breaker. But my point is we've never gotten to the point where it's like, you don't respect my, my opinion. I'm fuck you, man. It's, yeah. we never lose that mutual respect. We always know that the goal is just to find the best solution to the problem that we're facing. And as long as we're both committed to finding the best solution and both, willing to put our egos aside to find that best solution we can argue all fucking day and all of that is just more you know processing and data to try to try to get to the right mark i can almost in like years like fucking calling you a moron in that gyrocopter voice of <laughs> like, I can picture it. <laughs> yeah actually who is your favorite, man? who's your favorite person to work with like in the entire industry up until now um, actually who's the top three who's the top three in no particular you order, mean actually. from like uh like a back-end kind of management perspective or from like a talent like who's my favorite mm. person to cast with or be on panel with all right let's actually then break it up and say give us two from back-end and two from talent okay talent um trent is definitely my number one by far um i don't know what it is about that guy but we just have oh, your chemistry is great yeah a similar sense of humor and similar set of interests. So it's just very easy for us to riff and fill and the time just evaporates. And I, I don't have that to the same degree with anybody else. Um, number two is, it, it, you know, Trent, I can panel or cast or do anything with. If I'm on a panel, I think Slacks or Suns fan are kind of a tie. They're both, I, I could fill for, an, we could sit there, the, those four, me, Trent, Slack, Sunspan, I think we could sit there for two hours and just talk endlessly and be reasonably entertaining. Um, I mean, it would go off the rails at certain points, but it's just, there, there's a weird magic there. It would start there. off the rails, but yeah. Yeah. So those are definitely my, my top three talent-wise. 
Um, Management-wise, I think my number one is probably, I don't know if you guys remember Canada Cup or the Northern Arena Land that we did. The brand is now called Beat, B-A-T. But that guy, Bill, who's in charge of that, he is a great guy. Um, He's done a lot of stuff behind the scenes. He has a really good reputation in the Dota space and everywhere else they've run tournaments. We're actually going to New Zealand together to go to ExileCon, the Path of Exile convention, um, in about a month or three weeks or so. Uh, in November, so that should be pretty cool. Uh, but he's just a great guy, very knowledgeable, and a really good project manager. Um, hmm, number two, that's a good question. Who is our next favorite person to work with? Honestly, it's probably Dream Dreamhack slash Dream League, and we don't get to do a lot of like Moonduck crossover stuff. But I've been uh, working with them as like one of their remote commentators for a while. Basically, every time they do a major or minor, they need somebody off-site, and Trent and I have been their go-to for a while. Um, and I've I've been flown in to work in their studio four or five times now. Um, so I <laughs> I hate to say a faceless kind of like, I like Dreamhack, but. Um, you know, it's been a couple different project managers, a couple different producers and talent managers over the years. And I, there's something about that company, man. They just, they find, they know how to find real esports people. So everything they do is it's by gamers for gamers. And, mm. you know, it's a company based in Sweden. So there's really high standards. So their work is generally pretty reasonable. And when it's not, the pay is usually there to make up for it. Uh, they take good care of talent. I fucking love Sweden. It's fun. Um, DreamHack is is really cool to work with. They're a really unique entity base. That's awesome. So now, obviously, I don't want to rush the interview now, but we we don't have too much time left. And there was this one last question that I'd really like to ask you. And I I hope I get a nice in-depth answer here. Say, Ori, no pressure. (laughs) Always, (laughs) dude. um, Fuck. When I started reading your book, I saw at at, at a a certain point, I just saw James Two Good Hardings name there. And I was like, from the beginning till I got to that point, I was like waiting, revving up till I get to this point. And when I got there, the the, the book started getting really serious because that was at the point where I think, I I don't know if this is the right term, but the meltdown with BTS happened there. It was the TI5 hub. Everybody was invited. Sayori was invited there too. And the way Valve designed it was that everybody's going to get paid $4,000 $4,000 to be there. Right? They didn't want to make any beef. They invited the good studio. They invited BTS. They invited Join Dota Studio. It was like a fucking festival of Dota talent there. But unfortunately, yeah. for the BTS guys, um, Zayori and the contractors like uh, Dakota, you all got a bit of a short end of the stick, right? You all only got 2000 and you were already having doubts at that point with BTS. So then I want to know, like, because wh- when I was reading it, I got really mad because the way I am... I sort of have this personality trait where I feel like if people are getting mistreated, it, like, it really fucks with me, right? So I was sort of like, watch it. Like when you were telling in the book, James Too Good Harding, the story about how you guys are getting paid, that's what you do. And when he starts visibly tilting or from your perspective and in the book's perspective, <laughs> I started feeling the same way. So how was that whole experience for you like, looking back now in hindsight? Oh man, I, I was so green and so innocent. Like I can look back and almost see myself from his perspective, this like quibbling little, what, what, what if I don't get the contracts? Oh, and it's just like, bitch, just get out there and get the contracts. Like you're good, right? You think you're good? Yeah. Well then convince some other people you're good and you're going to get hired. Like confidence, confidence, confidence. That's what I needed to tell myself. And for I, that, if I could go back in time and just give advice to my younger self at so many points in my trajectory, it's like, dude, confidence you can get away with almost anything with confidence you can sell fucking ice to an eskimo if you're confident about it so i I, um i i think there's a product of just i was young and just didn't know anything and it's fucking scary the unknown is scary and it's really hard to analyze that risk when you're you're doing it for the first time and you you know you're i remember that scene in the office for the enthusiasts out there where angela's having that meltdown with dwight and she was like how do you send a notarized letter when the recipient is your notary and she's like making that worried face i felt the exact same way how do you ask your mentor what to do about a a business decision when your mentor is the guy that pays your salary you know (laughs) um the exact same sort of conundrum and I, I don't blame myself for being confused and kind of scared, but I think that's where I would have wanted to slap myself if I was just watching, you know, um, Scrooge style from uh, that Dickens story where you're just watching yourself make these shitty decisions. 
But uh, talking to James was awesome. He, he was a little bit intimidating. Um, he was very eager to help. And he, I think he shares some of what, what you guys described that like, he just doesn't like seeing people get taken advantage of. So once I started painting that picture, I think he definitely um, encouraged me to see it that way. Um, and I, I say that in a very delicate manner because there's two sides. There's, there's, you know, the, what too good was telling me is that they were fucking ripping me off. And then the LD perspective, that's like, Hey man, we paid you what we could. Times were tight. We were going to try to make you whole in the future. You know, I wasn't trying to fuck you, man. It was just the nature of the times and it, we were all struggling. So those are the two extremes. And I'm swimming more in the middle of just like, I mean, yeah, the good studio sounds pretty cool. And it's just like, well, LD, you did pay me a decent salary. So yeah, yeah, you know, <laughs> and I'm, I'm trying to connect them together in a way that makes it still interesting. <laughs> and I think they're both valid perspectives. That's what makes this whole thing so cool to analyze even looking back is that you know both of them are right in some regards and yeah. you know wrong in others and i needed to find the path that worked for me so it was definitely like the the devil and the angel kind of on my two shoulders too good definitely being the devil <laughs> but no he was very generous with his time and eager to share advice and i think his his words made me feel more confident um and you know looking back i don't know where he was in that whole perspective if he saw it as a good use of his time but it definitely helped me a lot um i haven't really stayed close with him over the years he's been sort of busy working on diabolical or whatever the hell he's doing over there in sweden so i, I know he's still around i work with scriff somewhat regularly and get the, the small little updates that he's still still doing james stuff but um you know it's kind of weird that he just like popped into my life had this really dramatic effect that really changed my trajectory and then just kind of disappeared into the fog like Batman. And that's it. And now here we are talking about it and I'm sure he'll never listen to this. That sounds <laughs> like know? James actually though. Like, yeah, you know, it is coming through, just giving you sage. He's basically, um, he's basically, a, he's, he's Faust, you know, comes through the demon is here. You sign the contract, tells you everything you need to know. And then once that's done, he's like, go my child, take my yeah. lessons into the world. Yeah, but I like I like the metaphor you used to describe the situation because if I look at it right, I think I also had a similar perspective to you in esports at, at a certain point in my time in esports, not that long, mind, mind you. And it was like, yo, full time salaried position in esports, even in two thousand and fucking nineteen, that's a rare thing. That's crazy. That's that's winning. You did it. You fucking made it, man. But at the same time, if you look at it from James' point of view and where you were at the TI five hub point, it's like, okay. I'm actually now a top talent. I'm getting hired for events month in, month out. Like, I can, I'm actually making more money than this fucking salary and I don't have to do all this behind the scenes fucking slog work. Am I getting taken advantage of? So it is, it's, it's, it's a tough thing. And I think, I don't know, just evaluating the journey through your book and just following you over the years, I think it, you had to go through that. Like, I think the experience you learned from the Malinis, the LDs, the, all the fucking crazy backroom stuff you guys had to do, I think it's probably what made you who you are today, right? No doubt. I mean, that that is the part that I'm so grateful and lucky for is that I was just able to be surrounded by people that were so much better than me, um, like genuinely. You know, I mean, all of them, when I got hired, were just better commentators. They knew more about Dota. They had more skin in the game. They had been playing the game longer. They were better at the game than me. When it came to Dota, all of them just had a better, longer resume. And that was sick learning experience. That gave me this ability to sort of power farm my Dota knowledge. And I, I kind of feel bad for BTS like as a company because they maybe this sounds grandiose, but they kind of created a monster that they couldn't control where they helped prop me up. I grew really fast. I collected all this knowledge and went, well, why the fuck are we doing this and this and this and this like this? And then, you know, I kind of called the, the bluff that I think most people would have been scared to give up their salary. Like you said, that's, hey, I made it. What am I going to do after this? Yeah. I kind of had that. Well, I've already been through this once. I've already given up a salary to take a risk on esports. <laughs> fuck it and fuck you. I'm out of here. I'm packing up my Honda and driving back to Jersey, baby. You know, I'll call that bluff. And I, I think not many people would have done that. So I think they were a little surprised that I was willing to just pull the ejector seat when I, I kind of didn't get my way. So I, I don't know. I, I feel a little bad that they empowered me to get to that position. And then I so quickly... <laughs> leveraged it against them when i think most people would have been a little more like i mean yeah this isn't that bad i'm still going to stick around this is way better than crapping out and running out of money so yeah most, you're right most people would have chosen loyalty over ambition but yeah that's a perfect curious. way to say it i'm actually curious how did you go about selecting the initial people that you chose to work with for moondog did you approach them did they approach you and if you approach them what was like the decision making matrix 
that you went into I, it for it. I kind of I, I mentioned I touch on it at the end of the book. A lot yeah. of the credit goes to Suns fan. He was mm. the the catalyst that connected that original crew. Um, he worked the Summit Two and the Summit Three, I think, as uh, admin. That, like you know, would watch watch the games and make sure there was no cheating and that kind of stuff. Um, so he was one of my confidants that I vented to. I remember at the after party of Summit Three, I was packing shit up in my room. Um, and he was giving me advice about just like kind of what to do and how to, you know, process things and stuff. Mm. So he knew that there was, there were issues with the kind of salary model that I was living. And, you know, he had been working with Cinderin. He, we kind of knew Purge a little bit. Um, and he knew Slacks because he had replaced Neil on fails or not. Is it? Oh, no, not Neil. Um, what's the fuck? The dude that used to do fails. So he yeah. was working with Slack. So he kind of assembled that group um, based on some of that descent. And I was one of the people that he contacted. Um, and then after the first couple of months, I kind of, we, we tried the democracy thing and then we needed a leader. And then I was the one that had the bandwidth and the wherewithal to kind of take the reins. And that was when I became the man. So it was sort of a product of just who was available, who was decent at Dota that we thought had potential. That was also an independent contractor and low on the totem pole. Um, hmm. that we liked working with. You know, it was sort of all those variables tied into one. You assembled right. the squad. You assembled the team for the heist game. It's pretty hard. Suicide squad assemble, man. <laughs> that would have been the because you guys, you guys did start off with the B team. And then who would have thought? You guys had a lot of talent because when I saw Moondock announced initially, I was like, this, if, if you look at it, like, objectively at the time, it's like, okay, kind of B team talent but like I'm like this is interesting talent this is a talent I want to I want to listen to I think this is going to fucking blow up and I'm glad to see I was right Yeah me yeah. too man me too <laughs> Yeah well done yeah actually real shout out like um I know that Kamyo was taking the reins on the fanboying for the day but like legit y'all did the thing you took the risk not very like especially in the industry as like super geared towards monopolies as esports is you actually try to break the mold of that so legit shout out well done some incredible things. Yeah, th thanks. I mean, it's it's been like our greatest strength and greatest weakness is that we've connected a group of contractors that otherwise wouldn't really have been connected because to mm. do that, you would have had to relocate or find some opportunity cost of giving up your own brand or projects for a guaranteed salary. So I, I think we've done a, an, a, at least an okay job of finding that balance of giving people freedom and flexibility to always put their brand first if chosen, but still get first dibs on this kind of Moonduck stuff where it's like, hey, yeah. if we just come together and do some Moonduck content, we can really create something that's way more valuable than just the sum of its parts. Um, and it's hard sometimes because nobody really gets a salary except me. We can't jumpstart like, a, hey, guys, all right, we need to do this tournament in the next month. Everybody, this is now your full-time focus. Like BTS can because they have all these full-time employees, and BTS is their number one focus always, and that directive can change as soon as management decides. For us, we have to be a little more nimble around when people are available. And if Purge has a gig set up or if Slacks has a gig set up, you know, we have all these kind of blackout dates. That's why it's so fucking hard to do What the Duck, because as everyone else gets more popular, they have more shit on their schedule. Yeah. And it's more rare that all of us have this intersection where we can sit down with five people and, you know, chit chat and laugh for two hours. Real talk, yeah, though, sure. the, the actual thing that you guys have done has, I don't know how to phrase this, um... It's made all of you more interesting in the sense that all of you seem a bit, especially Trent, seems so much less stressed than he used to, like maybe say a year or two years ago. Uh, and I think it's brought out the best in him. So Me I think, too. yeah, even this thing of like, like I mentioned, like you might not be necessarily as consistent uh, as, you know, down the line, you're doing this and nothing else as other gigs. But the mere fact that it exists as a entity in people's lives, it's, it's actually a good thing. Like, yeah. Yeah. Well, well, I'm glad to hear that. I mean, that was definitely one of our goals. We wanted to try to shift the paradigm, improve rates and conditions for casters. But when we started Moonduck four years ago or four and a half years ago, panels were pretty rough in Dota. There wasn't a lot yeah. of personality. There wasn't a lot of risk taking. It was a lot of one upsmanship about deep Dota knowledge and, you know, a bunch of white dudes just agreeing with each other all the time. <laughs> And we wanted to go in the opposite direction, and we wanted to build a brand that encouraged people to take risk and to go there and to put their ego aside for the sake of the show and make fun of each other and inject humor and make fun of the players and make everything a joke and make it more about entertainment and comedy and telling a story than it is about showing off how we're all experts about all things Dota. Of course, it's a balance of maintaining some semblance of seriousness and competitive integrity, but um, you know that was our whole thing is taking these talent and like 
like people like slacks and reining him in a little bit so he's not just huh. screaming into the microphone and taking talent <laughs> like purge and bringing him up a little bit so he's not quite as reserved all the time and also just putting them together to create a counterbalance right all those things were thought out and strategic instead of this sort of random mismatch of of analysts that events like esl would throw together i'll never forget the esl one new york i did in 2015 right after i left bts the zyori melk merlini purge panel melk with the flu (laughs) and then merlini and purge that fill was brutal dude it was just (laughs) zyori interviewing three people and I love all those people individually, and they're all super talented, know a lot but, about Dota, but you can't just team. you can't just put them all together and be like, this is going to be awesome and entertaining. <laughs> just fill for 20 minutes. Just make fun of Melk for being a failed player. It'll be awesome. <laughs> like that doesn't work, guys. You know that that's good. All right, there's there's about 10 seconds of fill right there. Thanks. Um, so we wanted to do the opposite of that and really put effort in. And, you know, like with Trent, that whole rebranding going from Mott Packs to Trent Packs, that was a big deal. And he didn't really want to do that. And we really pressured him into it. And I think that was the beginning of the real turning point for his career. So there's a lot of little, little success stories like that, that I think you can identify that we feel at least partially responsible for. And that's, that's awesome. I mean, that's, that's why we started this whole thing was to create career mobility for some of the lesser known talent. And I I think we've done that to some degree, at least. Well, I think you've done it quite well. And I would love to sit here and pick your brain for another couple of hours, which we w- I would have done if we didn't have a ha- hard time limit, but you do. So I'd like to thank yep. you so much, Zoe, for joining us on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. And yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you guys. I, I will say this is one of the most fun podcasts I've ever been on. You guys ask the real questions, dude. This is the good shit. Hey, deep <laughs> shit. Oh, that feels so good to you. I would also, like. Also, before we, we go off, I just want to say, Zari, uh, fear not, fear not. Soon there will be another man with dreadlocks replacing you in the Dota scene. You know, there's someone with dreads. It'll be me. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. Um, but I appreciate all the kind words about the book, Surviving Esports, the Zayori story. It's on Amazon. Anywhere that you can get Amazon delivered, you can get the book. It's also available on Kindle, so you can uh, get it on all your digital devices. If you do buy it, please drop a review. That is the one thing I've been begging people for. Amazon reviews actually help so, so much in raising the ranks and spreading the word and all that stuff. So if uh, there's one way to give back, it is a rating and a review on Amazon. Big hearts. Thank you so much for listening, gang. Sweet. And that's a wrap. What an episode that was. And what a pleasure hosting Zayori on this podcast. He's one of the greatest interviewees I've ever had the opportunity of getting a chance to interview. And gotta support him. Like he said, go buy his book. Give him a fucking good review on Amazon. And follow him at Twitter at Zayori TV. Also, catch our publication at Esports Central ZA um, on Facebook. At Esports CNTRL on Twitter. And at the World Wide Web at EsportsCentral.co.za. Oh, thank you all for joining us for this episode. It's been an absolute pleasure. Be sure to catch the next one. Episode number 66 recorded for the 31st of October 2019.